and welcome back to our second episode of the 2022 BMJ STI Transmitted Infections podcast. My name is Fabiola Martin and I'm the BMJ STI podcast editor. I'm consultant physician in sexual and reproductive health, HIV and HDLV medicine and senior research fellow at the School of Public Health at University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. Today, we will focus on the bacterial genitourinary pathogen Mycoplasma genitalium, short MGEN. It is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Emma Sweeney, Professor Catriona Bradshaw, and Professor Nicola Lowe to our podcast today. Hello, Emma. You're based in Brisbane. Could you please be so kind as to introduce yourself and tell us about your scope of work? Thank you, Fabiola, and thank you for the opportunity to be involved. I am a postdoctoral researcher based at the University of Queensland Centre for Clinical Research. I work within the Molecular Diagnostics and Characterization Lab that's led by Associate Professor David Wiley. And our group has a very strong focus on designing and validating molecular diagnostic tools that can enhance the detection of STIs and markers of antimicrobial resistance to help guide appropriate selection of antimicrobials. Fantastic. Sounds really interesting, Emma. And now to Catriona. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Could you please inform us a little bit about your expertise and place of work? Thanks, Fabiola. It's great to be able to contribute to the podcast. So, yeah, I'm a clinician researcher. I'm based at Melbourne Sexual Health Centre, which is a department of both Monash and the Alfred Hospital, a large tertiary hospital in Melbourne. And I head the translational research program. It has a strong focus for the past 15 years on improving treatment and control of MG and MGEN, amongst other things, and also really addressing antimicrobial resistance in MGEN. Thank you. And yes, I have myself very often used the guidelines that you and your team uh, provide. So thank you. Hello, Nicola. Welcome. And good morning to you, I think, in Switzerland. And please share with us what your area of research is. Thank you. Hi, Fabiola. Hello, everyone. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist uh, with a clinical background in genitourinary medicine and public health. I work in Switzerland, where I lead the Sexual and Reproductive Health Research Group at the Institute of Social and Preventive Medicine at the University of Bern. My work focuses on the epidemiology and prevention of bacterial sexually transmitted infections, including M. genitalium, using a range of research methods, including patient-focused research studies and synthesis of evidence in systematic reviews and meta-analysis. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you and welcome. Thanks for making time. I was going to start with Emma and ask you a very simple question, Emma. Not sure the answer is that simple, but the question is, Emma, what is MGEN? So Mycoplasma genitalium, or MGEN, is the smallest known free-living bacteria. It colonizes mucosal surfaces and can be found in the urogenital and rectal tract of humans, and in some rare cases it can also be found in the respiratory tract. Specimens like uh, urine, rectal, vaginal, and endocervical swabs are the preferred specimens for detection of MGEN. Um, throat swabs are not routinely recommended since pharyngeal MGEN infections are particularly uncommon. Ah, okay, that's really interesting. Thank you. And when it comes to treatment, is it easy to treat and be rid of it? 
Yeah, it's quite challenging. Uh, so currently, most STI guidelines recommend a sequential treatment for MGen, uh, where a course of doxycycline is given, and this is followed immediately by either a macrolide such as azithromycin or a fluoroquinolone like moxifloxacin. MGen is becoming very difficult to treat, and this is as a consequence of increasing levels of antimicrobial resistance. The rates of macrolide resistance are now extremely high globally, over 50% across most urban centres. And it's really a similar story for fluoroquinolones, where globally the rates of resistance are estimated to be around 7%. The problem remains, however, that there are limited alternative treatments beyond macrolides and quinolones for MGen. So treatment guidelines also recommend the use of a test to detect mutations that are associated with antimicrobial resistance. Um, in order to facilitate resistance-guided therapy and improve antimicrobial stewardship and first-line cure. This gives a clinician more information on the infecting strain and guides the appropriate selection of antimicrobials. This has been shown in a study from Melbourne Sexual Health Centre to dramatically improve the rates of cure, where doxycycline is followed by the most appropriate antimicrobial based on molecular testing to detect macrolide resistance. So, for example, if macrolide resistance mutations are detected, the use of macrolides are precluded and quinolones are used instead. However, with very high rates of macrolide resistance and steadily rising rates of fluoroquinolone resistance, we're now looking towards the next generation of resistance-guided treatment for MGen. Unfortunately, there are not yet any commercial tests to detect MGen fluoroquinolone resistance, but this is something that we're currently working on and have recently identified key molecular markers that are highly predictive of fluoroquinolone treatment success. These markers are now being used to design the next generation of resistance-guided diagnostic tests to help clinicians select the most appropriate treatment for their patients. Thank you, Emma. That was really comprehensive and I'm really hopeful uh, looking forward to these uh, new resistance tests that you just mentioned wishing to, you know, tailor the antibiotic treatment that I provide to my patients. But who are these patients? Katriona, who is most commonly affected by this pathogen? What do people typically complain about when they come and see you? Well, typically MGen affects around 1% to 2% of the population in studies in you know, Nordic countries, uh, UK and, and North America. And these studies all show a very similar prevalence in men and women, although we see a lot higher estimates in MSM and sex worker populations and in some select uh, populations of young women as well, particularly in the US. But it's generally quite an indolent STI compared, you know, to, for instance, gonorrhea. I always tell patients there's a bit of a cascade. So gonorrhea is the most aggressive, followed by chlamydia and then MGEMS at the bottom. And indeed, that really is also a reflection of organism load where we see that MGEM tends to occur at very low organism loads, 100-fold less than that of chlamydia typically. In men, MGEM is associated with urethritis. And it's commonly detected as an asymptomatic infection in the rectum. And there's been really quite conflicting data regarding its role in proctitis. So some studies showing an association, some studies not. Overall, though, it is more commonly detected at the rectum in symptomatic versus asymptomatic men by meta-analysis, so when you pull the data. When we look at the, the association of symptoms in women, two large studies, including one by our group, found no association with all the common genital symptoms. So we had expected it would be associated with dysuria and, and vaginal discharge, et cetera, and it, and it wasn't. But they did show a significant association with postcoital bleeding. 
cervicitis and PID. And two meta-analyses really confirm that MGen does have uh, an association with PID, preterm birth and spontaneous abort with odds really in the order of two and an association with elevated but not significant risk of tubal factor infertility. But I think Nicola is going to really update and expand on these data, on the evidence for sequelae women in a recent um, study that she's done. Yes, thank you. And we'll, we'll get to Nicola as well. But before we get there, again, in your experience, is it easy to test for it, for MGen? Yeah, it is. But I think the first question really is when do we test for MGen? So it's really important to adhere to the clinical guidelines and published data supports a number of indications for testing and our international and the national guidelines in Australia are all very consistent. So we test in individuals um, presenting with urethritis, so non-gonococcal urethritis, whether that's acute, recurrent or persistent, in women with cervicitis, in known or suspected PID, postcoital bleeding, and obviously in sexual contacts of NGEN. Now, consideration to testing should be given in patients with proctitis, particularly if they're negative for chlamydia and gonorrhea. It's quite reasonable just to test for chlamydia and gonorrhea and really only test an individual if they've got ongoing symptoms and they test negative for those organisms. The epididymoalkitis, again, particularly if it's negative for chlamydia and gonorrhea and seroreactive arthritis, which is pretty uncommon these days. It's easy to test for in males. The optimal sample is the first fluid urine. In females, generally the vaginal swab is more sensitive in studies than the endocervical swab, and certainly both are a lot better than urine in women. Obviously, you test for anal MGM with an anorectal swab if it's indicated. But data we did in our meta-analysis in MSM, we really found that pharyngeal MGM is really uncommon, so we don't recommend uh, pharyngeal testing. So just to reiterate, we really strongly recommend adhering to treatment guidelines and only testing individuals with clear indications and certainly avoiding screening. And you only test someone for MGEN really at the outset if you are planning to treat them, if you find it. So we treat to relieve symptoms, and that may on occasion actually include anxiety. We treat to prevent complications where they're known and likely. And we treat to prevent uh, infection of partners at risk of symptoms or sequelae. And we treat to prevent reinfection of the index who may be at risk of symptoms or sequelae. And these are all case-by-case um, -case decisions that you need to make as a clinician. I think it's really important that we inform our patients really at the outset of uh, the, the consultation about the evidence for harm from MGEN versus the evidence for harm from treatment, particularly that arises from repeated courses of antimicrobials. So I find setting goals early in an infection really helps to prepare patients for the possibility that, in fact, no further treatment may be possible. Yes, and I think that's really a key message here, setting expectations and taking that time to have that consultation where you explain how different MGen is from the other SDIs that we treat. Thank you, Katriona. Nicola, there is so much we do not know about MGen. It's a big question, but I think you can answer that for us in that, could you tell us a little bit about your findings with your MGen research? Yes, thank you, Fabiola and Emma and Kat for your contributions. 
what we've been doing are systematic reviews and meta-analyses of the body of evidence about M. genitalium and its consequences. So we put together the findings of all of the primary research studies that have been done and try and make sense of them. And most recently, we've been focusing on M. genitalium infections in pregnant women. So M-Gen is as common in pregnant women as in non-pregnant women in the general population. So as Kat said earlier, about 1% in high-income countries. But in countries like Papua New Guinea and South Africa, where studies have been done, about 12% of women have been found to uh, have M-genitalium in pregnancy. And it's even more common in women who have also got HIV infection. So these are studies that are done in countries where bacterial sexually transmitted infections and HIV in the general population are also common. But in short, a systematic review shows that the evidence about sequelae of M. genitalium infection in pregnancy isn't conclusive. And that's mainly because there are really relatively few studies. For preterm birth, we found that the risk of this complication could be about twice as high in women with M genitalium in pregnancy compared with women who don't have M genitalium. We didn't find any increase in spontaneous abortion, and that's unlike a previous systematic review that Kat was referring to. But the difference is that in our systematic review, we excluded studies that were based on self-report, and so we think that that probably explains the difference. For the other complications of pregnancy, we found that there's only one eligible published study about premature rupture of membranes, about low birth weight, and two studies about uh, perinatal death and its association with M. genitalium. So this small number of studies in a limited number of countries really makes it impossible to draw definitive conclusions about the risks of M. genitalium in pregnancy. Interestingly, we did our search most recently up to August 2021, and we didn't find any studies published since 2014. And several of the studies that are published rely on stored specimens tested retrospectively. So it is really rather hard to say anything definitive. In addition, many authors of the published studies do not do analyses that take into account confounding variables. And these are factors that could provide alternative explanations for any association that you do see. So we certainly need more research in this area. Right. So there, there are limitations to these studies that are not necessarily fully explained. Thank you, Nicola. I have one more question for you, if that's okay. Looking forward, and especially when you say, you know, there has been no further publication since 2014, which areas of MGen research would you like to focus on in future? Well, there are many really intriguing questions about MGen and its clinical consequences, both in non-pregnant and pregnant people. Not surprisingly, I'd like to see researchers design studies prospectively and specifically, which are large enough to determine whether these associations that might exist really are likely to be causal. And that means collecting information and analyzing the data so that we can take into account potential confounding factors, such as age, socioeconomic status, and co-infections. Co-infections are becoming increasingly recognized as important 
potentially in the pathogenicity of M. genitalium. And what we really need to understand is whether there are specific bacterial signatures or combinations of infections that are associated with the inflammatory processes that lead to preterm birth and other complications. And this information is really important practically because it's the information that helps us to decide about the need for diagnosis and treatment and then how to also manage antimicrobial resistance. That's right. And particularly when we are dealing with a pregnant patient, we need to be very careful with the antibiotics that we prescribe for them. So I very much support your plans and I hope you can, you know, fulfill them. Thank you all. We have come to the end of our podcast, but I wanted to just ask you for one final comment, you know, a take home message for our listeners. Katriona, do you have one for us? Yeah, I think perhaps one area we didn't touch on in this podcast is the management of sexual contacts of MGen, which is something clinicians encounter on a very regular basis. We know that the probability of infection in sexual contacts is less than 50%, as it is indeed for infections like chlamydia. And it is really important to avoid presumptive treatment of sexual contacts for, in fact, the majority of bacterial STIs these days in the context of AMR and collateral damage. So my take-home message is test and only treat detected infections in contacts, avoid presumptive treatment, unless, of course, you really feel it's essential to presumptively treat someone on the day. Fantastic. And Emma? Yeah, so there are um, new diagnostic tools for MGen resistance guided treatment that are on the horizon. Um, so watch this space. And these particular tests will help to support clinicians to tailor antibiotics for each patient, enhance antimicrobial stewardship and improve first line rates of cure for patients. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. And Nicola, do you have a final comment for us? Yes, thanks, Fabiola. I'm actually quite worried about the increasing access to multiplex PCR tests that detect a range of organisms and they can encourage unnecessary antibiotic treatment. So to reiterate what Kat said, we should not be doing screening of asymptomatic patients. And ideally, I would like to finish by saying, practitioners should always be treating the patient and not the test result. Fantastic. Thank you, Nicola. So in summary, mycoplasma genitalium can be found in urogenital and rectal tracts of humans and sometimes cause genitourinary symptoms. MGen is not as pathogenic as other STIs and only symptomatic patients should be tested for it. A NAT-PCR will detect MGen and some centers have access to MGen antibiotic resistance testing for macrolides and or fluoroquinolones. Partner notification is useful, but antibiotic treatment should only be offered if MGen has been detected. Finally, more research is required into its complications, potentially associated with untreated MGen. Well, this was our second 2022 BMJ SDI podcast. I'm Fabiola Martin and our guests were Dr. Emma Sweeney, Professor Katriona Bradshaw and Professor Nicola Lowe. I thank you all. You also can subscribe to our regular podcasts on our preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to get them directly on your device. We'd also like to hear from you, so please get in touch through our social media channels, Twitter or Facebook, or leave us a rating and review on the SDI podcast page. I thank you, 
and wish you a wonderful day. Stay safe and goodbye.